New Year to you all. It's good to be back with you again. And uh, if you have been around the last few weeks that I was here, uh, right before Christmas, I'm leading us through the book of 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead and be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be looking today at verses 9 and 10. But as you're turning there, I just want to speak briefly about the beauty of what we're doing today, that uh, it is a great way to start the year with the worship of the living God. And usually around New Year's, uh, a, a song that some of y'all may have sung comes to my mind. It's a, often sung as a hymn by Isaac Watts, and he says this, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. But he also says, Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. You know, every time that there's a new year, I'm often thinking, where did the last one go? And so this idea of time like an ever-rolling stream seems more and more real to me as I get older, that it's just flowing past quickly, moving out of my grasp. But the beautiful thing about what we do here, what we do in Christian worship, is we root ourselves in what Isaac Watts says is our eternal home, our hope for years to come, and the everlasting God. And so this is a great way that we gather at the beginning of the new year to remind ourselves that what we do in this life matters because what we do in this life is connected to the eternal God who is beyond time. And so as we gather, as we come and worship God, we are reminding ourselves of truths that are not time-bound, but truths that will last for eternity. In light of that, hear God's word as he speaks to us his truth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this, the word of our Lord, stands forever. I invite you to pray along with me that he might write these truths on our heart. Our Father, we thank you that day by day we can hear from you. And that as we gather, we know that we can understand you, the eternal, the everlasting, the omniscient, powerful God of the universe, because you yourself teach us through your word and your spirit. May we be encouraged by these things, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So often at the beginning of the year, um, many people have resolutions, uh, things that you hope to or aspire to throughout the year. Perhaps there are new habits that you want to have, like walking 10,000 steps or, or giving up a bad habit or starting a good habit. Or maybe it's things like saving money or uh, maybe it's just simple spiritual things like trying to read through the Bible every year, which is a practice I do. Uh, and what you should think about, though, is why are you picking those resolutions? 
Why is it that at the beginning of the year that some things you, you look at and say, this would be important for me to refocus on? Usually our resolutions are, are things that reflect what we see are deficits in us or are things that we see are goods that we need to bring into our life. But what is the most powerful thing that you could do that could change you? What is the most powerful thing that you could do that could change you and bring good into your life? Paul would want us to see from this passage that the most powerful thing that you could do is to worship, is to worship. Today, as we reflect on this passage, the, the big idea and really the outline for our text is this, that what you worship, you serve. What you worship, you serve. And Paul here talks about the, the worship of the Thessalonians. The, the Thessalonian church was, was in the area of Greece where they were dominated by the polytheistic Greek religion. And everyone there would have worshipped the Greek gods, Greek gods that you've probably heard about in your Western civilization classes. Gods like Zeus or Athena. And in this culture, people would, would have these gods surround them. They would be walking by temples that were dedicated to Zeus or Athena or some other god. They would be uh, filling their markets. They would be filling their homes. When they would go to athletic events, the athletic events would involve some aspect of worship, some praise of Zeus or acknowledging that this contest that they're about to do is in honor or reverence to a god or a goddess. They were surrounded by worship. They were a culture that was very worshipful. And what Paul tells us in this passage is that, that what sticks out about the Thessalonian Christians is the way that they changed their worship. That what sticks out about the Thessalonian Christians that, that became something that was talked about and was known throughout the area is that their worship shifted. Looking back at, at verse 8, in this text, Paul says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we, which is Paul and his co-workers, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There, Paul says, is the way that you changed your worship was so remarkable that, that we would go to towns to tell people about Jesus. And people say, oh, yeah, we heard about this Christianity. We heard about this Jesus because we hear about this group of people that are no longer worshiping Zeus, no longer worshiping Athena, no longer worshiping their gods. Their worship changed. And it was so remarkable that, that Paul didn't have to start from scratch when he would go to different places in Macedonia or Achaia. Because their worship was that countercultural. Their worship was that noticeable. But why was it so noticeable? Why was it so countercultural? Because often the way that we think about worship is, is more what we're doing just this morning. We often think of worship in a way that's kind of too small. We think of worship as just gathering together and singing songs. But worship is more than that. Worship is more than just what you sing about. The author, scholar, pastor Ian Duguid says this. He said, worship is the ultimate subversive activity in a world of idolatry, 
the materialism. Worship is the ultimate subversive activity in a world of idolatry and materialism. What is he trying to show us there? He's trying to show us that, that your worship is more than just you gathering and singing or listening to a lesson. Your worship is something deeper, something subversive, something that, that changes the way that you relate to the world. It's subversive. In a world that, that holds out idolatry and materialism, you are saying that there's something else that is valuable to me. There's something else that I structure my life around. All of life is worship. And your life, therefore, reflects what you worship. Worship is not just singing songs. Worship is more. People can worship money. And that doesn't mean that they get together and sing songs about money, though some people do. But they think about it. They dwell on it. They fantasize about it. They work for it. They hoard it. They cherish it. Worship isn't just about what you sing. Worship is about what your life says that this is important. This is what matters. This is what drives me. And we are all creatures that worship. And our worship is seen in three particular ways that we've been reflecting on in this beginning passage of 1 Thessalonians. Our worship is ultimately seen in our love, in our faith, in our hope. In these first 10 verses that we've looked at over the last few weeks, Paul has been reflecting on those three things, faith, hope, and love, three great Christian virtues. And he keeps pulling people back to how these things throw, flow out of what they believe. They flow out of what they think what is important, what they think matters. And here in these last two verses, he shows us that what we worship is what guides our faith, our hope, and our love. What you worship is what you love. What you worship is what guides your life. It's the foundation of your faith. What you worship is what gives you hope. Paul talks about how they changed their worship, going from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is seen in the way that their faith changed. No longer are they putting their, their faith in Zeus and Athena. They're now putting their faith in what Paul says is the living and true God, the God that was revealed in the Old Testament as Yahweh, the God that is seen ultimately in Christ. It changed their love. No longer are they looking towards these gods and, and worshiping them, That they're now looking to Jesus and to the Father. It changed their hope. They're no longer hoping that these gods will save them. Their hope is in the Father who will save them from wrath to come through Jesus. Their faith, hope, and love has been changed because of their worship. And this all is what happens to us as well. What we worship shapes our faith, our hope, and our love. You can see this in the way that you deal with your boredom. What do you do when you are bored? What do you do? When you feel bored, you're wanting something to, to worship. You're wanting something to captivate you. So, so perhaps you turn towards something that you love. 
And so maybe you, you turn on Spotify and listen to a band or a song that you really like, or, or maybe you'll call someone that you enjoy so that you can talk to them, or maybe you'll turn on YouTube or Netflix or TikTok to be, be caught up in something that is compelling, or maybe you'll go for a walk in the woods to, to find in creation something glorious, something to speak into that emptiness that that boredom reveals. You seek something to worship in your boredom. You're seeking something to fill you with that sense of love, that this thing is beautiful, this thing is glorious. Or perhaps instead of, of going and trying to find something to love, when you're bored, you may find something to do. You may tackle those bills that have been piling up, or you may do some yard work, you may clean, you may do something on the car. Why? Because you're wanting to believe that, that your actions matter. You're wanting to believe that, that what you do is going to make a better life. You're, you're wanting to have a sense of, of value towards your present existence, that, that you doing something is impactful and better for you. And what is that? That is you living out of some sense of faith. That my actions matter. And faith is not just about your religious affiliation. Faith is what guides everyone. We all operate a, a sense of that if I do this action, if I do this thing, then it's going to be good, that it matters, that it has value. And so our actions always reveal our faith. And so in times of boredom, we want to find that sense of meaningfulness, that sense of purpose, that I'm not just some bump on a log, but that what I do, that my life itself has value. And so we'll try to act. Or sometimes when we board, we'll just have our thoughts move forward. We'll begin to dream, to daydream, to plan, to think about a new vacation, a new house, a new car, a new spouse, something that, that is compelling, that is out there, that we think, if I had that, then it would deal with this deficit, this longing, this hurt, this plan. And if you've ever found yourself daydreaming, you know that when you're daydreaming, you're not bored, are you? That oftentimes when you sit at that light and it's turned green and someone behind you is honking, you realize that you were just caught up in that daydream, caught up in that longing, and that it was found to be beautifully compelling to you, not boring. Because we are transfixed by the things that we hope on. And so it doesn't find us to be bored by them, but fascinated. But here again, that aspect of, of what we hope for reveals in a sense what we worship, that, that if we have this thing, if we have this good thing, if we build our life around that good thing, it will satisfy me. It will bring me peace. It will bring me joy. It will bring me good things. And that is the way that we are built because we are creatures that are built to worship. And our worship is seen in the way that we live out lives of faith, hope, and love. And what you pursue in your life reveals what you praise. What you pursue in your life reveals where you think that you will find faith, hope, and love grounded. What you praise, you pursue, because you think that that will bring you what you as a creature are made to have, made to live by. And our worship isn't something that, that we do by ourselves. Our worship is something that is communal. That's why people noticed that these Christians were no longer worshiping the other gods. 
Our culture kind of teaches us to think of worship as just something separate over here that we may do in the private home that we have or in our private little church services. But the culture at that time knew better that our worship is communal, that the way that you worship couldn't be segmented out of your life because all of your life would flow out of what you worship. And so they were able to see that these Christians were no longer worshiping their gods because they saw the manner of their life, saw the way that they lived. People will get a sense of what you worship by the way that you live. People will get a sense of what you worship because they're going to see what is driving you, what you love. They're going to see the way that you act out your life and your faith. They're going to see what you've got in the headlamps of your your view to, to see as your hope, where you're going. What guides you? And that, by the way, is a great way to find out what you worship. To ask somebody, what do I talk about a lot? To ask somebody, what do I get angry about that you think is odd? To ask somebody, what do you think really matters to me? Those things can reveal what you worship which is why they're dangerous questions to ask. Because worship is communal. Worship is something that we do with people. Worship is something that we do in front of people, which is why if you're dating somebody new, you're going to want people to meet them. And it's going to be important to you that they like who you're dating. Worship is communal. It's not something that we do by ourselves, And so it means that the life that we live is going to be seen and noticed and witnessed by those around us, which is why Paul says that these Christians in in changing their worship had had such a transformative life that that it was talked about in the whole region, not just that little pocket that they were in in Thessalonica, but the whole region heard about their changed worship and the way that was bubbling out in their faith, their hope and love. Their, Their way of life was subversive in a culture that was idolatrous. But that's a good question for us. Is our life subversive like that? Do people see that there's some sort of difference about you because of the nature of your life? That the things that you love, the things that you do, the things that you hope in, that your faith, hope, and love is is evident to those that are around you. Paul seems to think that that our worship is, in a sense, evangelistic, not just because of this gathering here, which is evangelistic, but but that our manner of life proclaims a different kind of love, a different kind of faith, a different kind of hope that we as Christians have than everybody else has. They were transformed because their worship changed which is why one of the most powerful things that you can do in this coming year is to shift your worship, to change your worship. But the problem is, is the way that we often think about our resolutions is it's a matter of will, it's a matter of effort. I'm going to wake up every day at six o'clock and go to the gym. I just, I'm gonna gut it through, which lasts for maybe a week if we're lucky. Because our will is never sufficient to lead us into long-term worship. Our will is never sufficient to keep us worshiping 
what we need to worship. The author John Owen says this about worship. He says that the worship of God is not something that you can do out of your will, but it is an innate acknowledged principle that the soul of man will not keep up cheerfully unto the worship of God unless it has a discovery of a beauty and comeliness in it. The soul of man will not keep up cheerfully unto the worship of God unless it has a discovery of a beauty and a comeliness in it. Now, obviously, there's times when, when we don't see that beauty. And so we do come to church. We keep reading our Bible. We keep praying. But that's not out of will. What is that? That's out of faith. That believes that if I keep coming to church, I'll get to see yet again what I know is there, that beauty, that comeliness, that glory that exists in God. But that is what drives us to worship, not our will. That is what keeps us in worship, not our will. That sense that here in God, here in the triune God, I will find what is beautiful. I will find what is glorious. I will find what my whole being was built to see and to know. What keeps us worshiping God is seeing that beauty and that glory. And that's what we are longing for in our life. That is what is often driving our loves, our faiths, our hopes, is trying to find something that fills that sense of boredom, that sense of emptiness that exists, something that is glorious that keeps us coming back and saying, here I have found it, here it exists, here I can know it. And the Thessalonians, Paul says, saw it and so quickly said that this is what we've been longing for, so quickly said that this is what we have always known that we needed. That they changed their worship from these idols to God so quickly that, that everyone said, wow, how is it that they so quickly changed? It must be that there's something glorious here. It must be that there's something satisfying beautiful here. Do you have that sense about God? That beauty, that comeliness that can only exist in Him. What you worship is important because when you see that there you will find that beauty, there you will find that comeliness, there you will find that glory, that is what you will serve. You know, sometimes when we think in Christianity about sin, we think about it more as breaking a rule, as, as doing something that you shouldn't do. But, but if you listen and think about sin, you know that, that sin isn't just about what you don't do, but it's also about what you don't do. Because sin ultimately is a revelation of our worship, and, and sin ultimately reveals the emptiness of our worship. Sin ultimately reveals that the things that we say that here is something beautiful, here is something glorious, here is something that will satisfy me, but, but it, it never lives up to it. That's why Paul speaks in this passage when he talks about the worship of the Thessalonians, that they, they moved from idols to what? They moved from worshiping idols to serve the living and true God. The living and true God. 
And this is likely a reference to Jeremiah chapter 10 because it's the only other place in the Bible that we find those two things coming together, the living and true God. And listen to Jeremiah 10. This is a chapter where the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the Israelites, calling them not to worship the gods that are around them in the other nations. But in Jeremiah 10, starting in verse 6, he says this, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instructions of idols is but wood. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. There in verse 10, you hear that the Lord, the true God, the Lord, the living God, and even the aspect of, of his wrath, which is why a lot of commentators say that Paul is drawing in this chapter as he's writing this verse. But did you hear what Jeremiah said about idolatry? He says in verse 8 that, that those who worship idols are stupid and foolish, and the instructions of idols is but wood. That's such an interesting phrase. The instruction of idols is but wood. What is he saying there? He's saying that, that what you worship is what guides you, what leads you, what directs your life. So that, that these idols that, that craftsmen made out of wood, they taught their people nothing but wood. That what the people were worshiping, what they were following, what built their life was nothing but wood. Their instruction of idols is but wood. It's, it's empty, which is why he says that the Lord is the true God. You know, that phrase that Paul uses in speaking about true in Greek it isn't so much about saying it's the opposite of falseness. There's a couple words for true in Greek, and the one that he uses doesn't have that sense that the opposite is falseness, but it has more of the sense that the opposite is unreal. That the opposite is unreal. That, that it's not that there is a true and false God, though that's the case, but here what Paul is saying, that there's an unreal and a real God. And that because he's the true God, he is the real God. That he's not empty, he's not made of wood, he's not make-believe, he's not nothing. But he's something. And this is what Paul is wanting to remind the Thessalonians, that, that what they're worshiping isn't nothing, but it is something. But what everyone else is doing is they're worshiping nothing, that what is guiding their life, what is instructing them is nothing but wood. That what their life is built on is empty. And this is why what we worship is so important. Because what you worship is what is the foundation of your life. And some of us are building our life on wood. Some of us are building our life on emptiness and nothing. But how do you see this come out in your life? How do you see that this is playing out in the way that you live? Paul points to one of the ways that you see it is by your hope. 
So in verse 10, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There again, he's drawing on Jeremiah chapter 10, where the prophet Jeremiah speaks about how the Lord will bring wrath and at his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. God will bring wrath for those who are worshiping the other gods. But Paul says, your hope is different. That your hope is in something that delivers you from that wrath to come. And Paul here is showing that, that this is a way to understand whether your life is built on something that is empty or something that is there. Whether or not you have to worry. Whether or not you have to fear. You see, one way that you can understand what you worship is by looking at the fears that you have. Looking at the fears that drive your life. Looking at the, the fears of wrath that exist in your life. I'll, I'll give you an example. An example that's from my own life. Peanut butter, the kind of peanut butter that I like at Harris Teeter is $1.99. I know that price. And I can go to Target, and if I go to Target, the similar kind of peanut butter there is $2.24. I know that price. And if I'm at Target needing to buy the peanut butter there that is $2.24, I can feel in myself fear, tension. Because I could save 25 cents if I just were to swing by Harris Teeter and pick it up there. Some of you may feel that too. When you see gas and it's priced at, at $2.99, but you know if you drive a couple more miles, it's $2.87, but you look and you're already at zero in terms of the fuel remaining, but you're like, ooh, I could use to save that extra 12 cents by driving and taking a risk. Those fears reveal what value you think you will find in something. And so I can have that sense of, of fear that says, if I had that extra 25 cents, then, then my life is going to be better. If I had that extra 25 cents, wouldn't it be lovely? If I, it's so lovely to have that comfort of financial security that, that I need to take the extra time to drive to save 25 cents, which of course wastes at least 25 cents in gas and certainly 25 cents worth of time. But, but that thing is so important that it's going to organize my life. We all do this in myriads of ways. You can fear people snickering at, at what you say. You can feel anxious about disappointing your parents. You can worry about your friends leaving you out and not including you. You can worry about what people think you look like. You can have so many different fears that, that exist that speak to you and say that, that if I had this thing, if my life had this thing, then my life is built on something secure, something that will deliver me from the wrath I fear, the wrath of being ugly, the wrath of being alone, the wrath of not having enough money, the wrath of losing comfort. There's all these things that we fear, but, but do you remember what Jeremiah said about seeing the glorious God? He says, he alone is worthy of our fear. 
And this is what Paul is saying too, that, that when you see God as the one who is real, then you do not have to have any other fears because he delivers us from the wrath to come. And this is so different than all the other things that we can fear because we worry about the wrath to come, that if I do spend that extra quarter, then it's going to hurt me. If I do not dress up the certain way that will be socially acceptable, it will hurt me. If I do not have the perfect job evaluation, it will somehow hurt me. We worry about the wrath to come in so many places in our life, and that reveals what we worship. But with Jesus, Paul says, you never have to fear the wrath to come. And this is what we have through the gospel. That the gospel gives us the confidence that that what we fear will never crush us. That what we fear will only bless us. That our greatest fear will never destroy us, but our greatest, greatest fear will only give us life. And we know this because of the cross, because on the cross we see what we worship being crushed for our iniquities. So that, as Paul says, he could be raised from the dead. So that we know that through his crushing comes our life. That his resurrection is a reminder to us that we will never have to have fear that we will be left alone. Never have to have fear that we won't have enough. Never have to have fear that we are unlovely or unloved. Is this a sense that you have from Jesus? Is this the sense that you have from God? What did Owen tell us? That you can't worship for long without seeing the beauty, seeing the comeliness of God. But but the cross points us to that beauty. The cross points us to that glory. And your Christianity needs that. You need to have that sense of joyful communion with him. But so often we think that that experience is not for us, that that our sin is too powerful. It's too active within to to ever hope for a fellowship, this closeness, a love like that, that that at best, maybe we get to go to heaven. At best, maybe he'll he'll give us a smile now and then. But, But what the cross reminds us is that his smile is always for us. There's a book that um, was written by Trevor Noah. He was a host of a news comedy show, The Daily Show, that some of y'all have may have seen, but NC State requires freshmen to read books in the summer, and this was one that they had the freshmen read, and so I read along with them. And he tells a story about his relationship with his father. And his parents never married. His father was... Um, In South Africa, his father was white and his mother was black, and so it was illegal for them to marry, which is why the title of his book is Born a Crime. And so after a a few years, they they didn't marry, they didn't live together, and so there ended up growing distance between Trevor and his father. And he cut him out of his life about the age of 13, but when he was about 24, his mom began to encourage him to, to seek out his father. And so he ends up writing a letter to his father, and he ends up getting invited by his father to come over to his father's apartment. And he, and he went in with a bit of anger and a bit of a hesitancy to, to see his dad. And, and throughout the time that he was there, he just kind of kept that sense of distance. But, but he writes this in his book. 
While I was eating, my dad got up and went and picked up this book, an oversized photo album, and brought it back to the table. And he said, I've been following you. And he opened up his book. And it was a scrapbook of everything that I'd ever done. Every time my name was mentioned in a newspaper, everything from magazine covers to the tiniest club listings, from the beginning of my career all the way through that very week. He was smiling so big as he took me through it, looking at the headlines, Trevor Noah appearing this Saturday at the Blue Room, or Trevor Noah hosting a new TV show. I felt a flood of emotions rushing through me. It was everything I could do not to start crying. It felt like this 10-year gap in my life closed right up in an instant, like only a day had passed since I last saw him. For years, I had so many questions. Is he thinking about me? Does he know what I'm doing? Is he proud of me? But he had been with me the whole time. He'd always been proud of me. Circumstances had pulled us apart, but he was never not my father. I walked out of his house that day an inch taller. Seeing him had reaffirmed his choosing of me. He chose to have me in my life. He chose to answer my letter. I was wanted. Being chosen is the greatest gift you can give to another human being. What a beautiful glimpse of how that father's love transformed him in an instant. He had success. He had notoriety. He had talent. But he said, I walked out of that house that day an inch taller. You see, what you worship has the ability to crush you, to fill you with fear, to, to push you down to the ground, or it has the ability to lift you, to grow you, so that you walk around an inch taller. And this is what Paul wants us to understand we have in the gospel. That knowledge that God says to you, I choose you. That God says to you, I want you in my life. That God says to you, I am proud of you. I delight in you. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. And seeing that, knowing that, leads us to worship. Seeing that, knowing that, transforms what we love our faith, our hope. Seeing that, knowing that, will shape you in beautiful ways because he who we worship is beautiful. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you change us through your presence in our life. Help us to remember it even when we're prone to forget. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.